Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chetham, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And we have an extra special episode for you today. We have the one, the only Hal Higdon. That's right, the person who constructed so many of the plans that fueled first-time marathoners, not only in this country, but all over the world. He is here to talk all things marathoning and running, and we just had an absolutely fantastic conversation. I can't wait to get to it. However, with that said, I do have an announcement. So this is regards to me and the podcast and things like that. So if you want to skip ahead, believe me, I totally understand. Hal Hignan is a huge draw and you're going to love that conversation. With that said, I want to bring up a couple things. First of all, I'm excited to share that I will be going full time with the podcast, also with run coaching as well. This is an enormous step for me personally and something that frankly, I did not think was ever going to happen. Just to put you into my shoes three years ago, when I started the Rambling Runner podcast, I created it with the idea that basically I didn't care if anyone ever listened to the show. I wanted to have interesting conversations with dedicated amateur runners. And if I taped those conversations and put them out in a podcast, great, fantastic. But if no one ever listened, I was totally fine with that as well, because I knew the conversations would make it worthwhile. And frankly, for the first six months, no one did listen. So thank goodness I went into it with no expectations whatsoever. After the six-month mark, after that uh, California International Marathon, I started getting um, more and more guests, went to twice a week, started having um, logos that looked a little bit more professional, and really started trying to create a community around the podcast. And with all of that being said, it started to take off. So for the past two years, it's kind of grown and grown and grown. Uh, last summer, we created the Road to the Olympic Trials feed, which has really taken off in the last couple months. And now here we are. The podcast itself has been uh, creating revenue for a while. Thank you to all the sponsors that make that happen. I can't thank you enough for that. Also, in addition, I've been coaching for a while. And last December, a few months ago, I created my own uh, coaching service, The Rambling Runners. That took off. That went really, really well. And I uh, shared on uh, Instagram last week, and maybe you saw this, but I was asked to join McCurdy Trained as a coach as well. James McCurdy is a good friend of mine, as is his wife, Heather. I've had both of them on the podcast, and I've grown to just adore both of them. James is also my coach, and you may have heard uh, Coach's Corner episodes with James coaching me through uh, various stages of my own running life. So uh, about a month ago, not even a month ago, a few weeks ago, they asked me to join McCurdy Trained and bring my athletes over with me. And I could not say yes fast enough. This is one of the best and biggest coaching services in the country. The roster of coaches is absolutely fantastic. And it was a dream come true for me to do that. Also, it allowed me to focus even more time on the show. So instead of trying to recruit athletes as to be uh, basically bought into my own coaching service, I can be part of McCurdy Trained. It's such a highly respected organization. I can have my roster of athletes, you know, bring in some new runners as well. And then really focus more and more time onto the podcast. Because for me, this has been a side hustle for, for all intents and purposes. I work a 40-hour-a-week job, and I do the coaching, and I do the podcasts 
on my lunch break and at night and in the morning before work and before workout and things of that nature. And it takes a toll and there was a limit to the amount of work I could do on it. And as the podcast has continued to grow and grow and as the podcasting space has grown and grown, it got to the point where not only was it something that I wanted to do and wanted to make full time and it was, you know, the driving professional passion of my life. It was also more financially responsible to go into it because things have been going just so darn well between the coaching and the podcast. So it is uh, truly an exciting day for me. It, it Honestly, even a year ago, you know, I, I would dream about something like this happening, but it was simply a dream. It wasn't even aspirational. It was just a dream. And to say now that it's happening is... um I can't even believe it. I can't even believe I hear I'm hear. i sitting here talking about it. I know I'm going to be on a podcast uh, in a couple of weeks. I'm not going to talk about whose, but um, I'll be recording another podcast with a good friend of mine talking about this sort of thing in the future, and we'll dive deeper into it then. But I did want to just let you know that this is happening. I'm so, so excited about it. I think it will elevate this podcast because it will allow me to spend more and more time on it, and uh, things can only go up from there. So with that said, thank you so much for listening to this show and doing all the things that uh, have helped elevate both of these podcast streams, Road to the Olympic Trials and The Rambling Runner. They're going so well, and it's because of you and because of the guests. Simply put, that is the, the key drivers here, and I couldn't be more thankful to all of you that have contributed to this show in one way or another. So before we get into Hal Higdon, I talked about the sponsors earlier. This show would not exist without the sponsors. So let me give a shout out to Prevenex. I trust these guys so much. They're just such a wonderful supplement company. I never thought I would say that about a supplement company because for so long, and I actually said this to the CEO when we spoke on the phone three months ago, that I treated supplement companies the same way I treated getting my car fixed. Every time I invested in it, I never knew what was going to happen. I knew so little about the space that people could literally tell me anything and I wouldn't have the ability to disprove them. And that made me very, very skeptical. But seeing is believing, and I have been taking Prevenex supplements for months now, and I am better for it. Go to Prevenex.com, use code RUNNER15, and save 15% on your first order. Now, without further ado, here is Hal Higdon. Hello, Hal, and welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Matt. Oh, it's, it's a, it's a privilege and an honor to have you on next week. So we're recording this the last week of February marathon, the ultimate training guide volume five is out. Can you believe that you've done five volumes of this? If you can go back in time when you were creating the first one, did you think you would get to this point? Well, I can go back even further in time, back into the dim reaches of the uh, last century slash millennium. There is that word, millennium. Um, basically, when I went out for track as a uh, sophomore in high school and believed that I still would be involved in the sport these many, 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 many years, I don't want to admit how old I am, but I've been running a, a long, long time. And the fact that uh, five editions of Marathon, the Ultimate Training Guide, not too many books last that long. It first published in 1993. Uh, by uh, Rodale, and it's just uh, lingered there out on the marketplace. And we keep refreshing it, too. So there's a new material in the book. Obviously, writing a book is an exhaustive process. When you go through, like, we'll just use this edition as an example. 
when you go through to make the fifth volume, do you go through and just kind of retouch the whole thing or do you just kind of like to expand on certain points? Well, it's almost a total rewrite. I go through and uh, whatever I'm in my mood to change, I will change. I'm also, uh, I probably spent a, a whole winter last year uh, working on the book and I'm looking to make sure that the science is uh, correct. Uh, today, I'm uh, often quoting uh, people, eliminating a few people that I might have interviewed back in the, uh, the 90s, but refreshing the book. Uh, adding a few chapters, uh, cutting a few others, and so that it's a book of uh, 2020, not merely a book of 1993, but still all with with all the motivational good stuff that will help people as they train for a marathon. Now, as the research and just constant knowledge within the sport continues to evolve and change and expand and so on and so forth, how do you decide when it's time to write a new volume as opposed to just waiting another year or so? And, you know, considering that, shoot, there's, a, there's, there's constant innovation. Where do you draw a line in the sand and say, okay, now is a good time to write a new one? I'm not sure I ever draw the line, but uh, it's just a matter of uh, my suddenly realizing that the fourth edition came out in, I think it was 2011 and it's time to uh, uh, get a new book out there. So I, uh, get in touch with my publishers and give them that conversation. It often takes the publication a year or two to uh, put things through the pipeline, particularly since uh, in the last year, Runner's World basically uh, subdivided with the book division going off to Penguin Random House and the magazine division going to Hearst. And so it's almost like a, a whole new support system for everybody's favorite magazine and uh, book division as well. So as you started this process and you said, all right, shoot, it's been a while. Let's put another book out there. What topics were the ones that most got your blood pumping that you really wanted to touch on in this volume? Well, actually, I'll tell you one chapter I deleted. It was a chapter on women's running that actually almost, I hate to say this, treated women as a different category. And I realized uh, that actually the whole book was women's women's running. The women are dominating the sport these days. So basically they didn't need a separate chapter telling them uh, what they should and shouldn't do. Uh, the other chapters that I did add, uh, uh, I did one on pool running, uh, basically for injuries. People uh, get hurt. Uh, probably the, the best way to rehabilitate is find a pool of a flotation vest and jump in the deep end and uh, you can continue to train just as hard as you could if you were out running. Also, the other factor, another chapter I did on ultra marathons, because I've noticed that more and more people have been signing up for my 50K training program. This suggests to me that ultra running, uh, even though maybe it's a little bit of low key, is sort of a hot item these days. So I wanted to include uh, training programs for the, not only the 50K, but uh, uh, also for the 50 miles. So those will be uh, a fresh chapter in the book. My publishers also asked me to do a, a, a separate chapter on qualifying for the, uh, the Boston Marathon, uh, the so-called BQ Boston Qualifier. So um, I gave a few tips on that. And uh, before we knew it, we had a relatively uh, new book and the 
packaging, of course, was eventually up to the, the publishers. And uh, I've sort of been inherited in the, the change now. I've come back to Random House. Random House was one of my early publishers and one of my best publishers. So I'm really sort of happy to be under the Random House umbrella again. So I was talking to a, a you know, fellow runner, I think it was two months ago on the podcast, and we were joking about how at the next Olympic trials, 2024, they should just have aqua jogging as a sport. Since basically every single runner is at some point in the calendar year doing aqua jogging as well. Well, it's great if you have a pool. I do some uh, regular running. I'm down in Florida and I know my wife and I spend our winters in Florida where we're very lucky to have a heated outdoor pool. So I'll go over to the gym two or three times a a week and uh, work on the weights. And after I get out of the weight room, then I head straight to the pool and not only do laps as a swimmer, but then also laps as a runner, uh, running approximately in chest deep water. And in my chapter on pool running, I uh, quote a gal that I, I, I coached in high school, Megan Leahy is her name. She's now a podiatrist in Chicago. And uh, basically she became injured her senior year in cross country, spent almost a whole season in the pool came out of that pool and finished second in the state. And uh, she was one of the main people that I interviewed for that chapter to uh, share what she learned and what I learned from her training so other runners can benefit as well. So why do you think the pool ends up being a better cross-training modality than, say, hopping on a stationary bike? Hopping on a bike is great, but not everybody can do that. Uh, sometimes if you get on a bike, it's going to strain muscles that you do not want to strain. That's certainly true uh, uh, swimming as well, so uh, or any sport, walking. But uh, the uh, uh, pool running actually is the low-impact exercise. It's great for fitness, and uh, other than that, all I can say is it works, although hopefully you won't be forced into the pool as a rehab if you <laughs> Follow smart training programs, which I believe I have online at halhigdon.com, then I think maybe you don't won't get injured. Right. That's the, that's the kind of the crux of the article, right? Like you don't want to have to have those cross training modalities, you know, for in terms of like rehab, right? It's best if like you never get put in that position, right? It's like it's like having the eraser on the pencil. Hopefully, you don't have to use it, but it's there if you need it. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, I've been a successful runner all my life because one of the reasons is I have very good biomechanics. You know, my, all the body parts uh, fit together. Uh, I was very clever when I selected my parents to come away with the, the body I have. So that's been a strong amount of my success. And among your elite athletes, uh, certainly God-given talent uh, is, uh, is a great thing, too. You can sometimes uh, get away from not having that God-given talent by training intelligently. And one of the purposes or reasons uh, for certainly having a book like mine is so that you can train intelligently and avoid uh, some of what might be called unforced errors. Now, when you're talking about something like biomechanics and you're doing it as a coach, when you're not personally present, 
while observing a runner, how deep can you get into that topic while being, say, a, a, a remote coach as opposed to someone who's coaching another individual in person? Yeah, it's great if you can have a coach standing right by the track uh, telling you what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. I can think of uh, Ted Hayden, my coach at the University of Chicago Track Club. He was basically there every day for me to uh, use his intelligence for uh, his use of the stopwatch to uh, watch me in my training. But not everybody in today's market has that advantage. And so uh, we have to use whatever uh, works best for us. Uh, there are, at the same time, a lot of coaches available these days that if a runner wants to utilize the help of the coach, uh, uh, definitely they're there to be used, but there is no substitute uh, for uh, somebody who actually talked to you one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, can't have that. Uh, I'll be glad to uh, talk to you on Facebook and Twitter and solve whatever problems you have. There you go. I love it. So, so a second ago, we talked about uh, you know, different recovery methods, you know, whether it's the pool or the bike or whatever. And part of that too is the the advent in so many, you know, the technological advent, I should say, of a lot of new things and products that are on the market for recovery and just, you know, how people approach recovery, I guess is a better way of putting it, has changed a lot in the past few decades. Can you speak to that at all in terms of just philosophically before we get into certain products and, and modalities? What has the shift been like just in terms of um, just the philosophy around training and recovery over the past couple decades? Well, I think, let me use the word education, because what I think we've done in the last generation or two, we've educated a lot of really smart uh, young guys and young gals to work as physical therapists. Uh, in fact, here, coincidentally, um, I was... Um, at a, at a local physical therapy place this afternoon, my wife was having a few problems of uh, a little bit of balance. Uh, and so we've been doing some rehab up there. And I'm just sort of amazed at the intelligence and the use that these people have in, in training well. I know, speaking of my old uh, own experience, uh, I showed up at the World Masters Championships one year and was warming up for the steeplechase. And I pulled my uh, hamstring, not a serious pull, but a slight hamstring. So I had to bail out of the uh, race, which was no problem because uh, I could just uh, become a tourist. But I had a commitment to do another relay race up in Alaska within like about a month. And there was no way I was going to be able to cover the 12 miles that I was going to be asked to run with that uh, pulled hamstring muscle. Well, I went back home to uh, Michigan City, Indiana, talked to the rehab people, uh, they worked with me two or three days a, a week and got me back into shape. I ran the relay uh, without any problems. So there's a lot of uh, help out there in addition to self-help, and uh, uh, we need to utilize it and not be afraid to call in the sports medicine professionals, um, you know, to uh, to keep us uh, keep us running. And one thing that's just been pervasive through so many sports. This isn't just running. You see, you know, it's, it's the NBA season right now, and you hear a lot about load management, you know, players and coaches making sure that they're pacing their their bodies, not just for the course of a game, but for the course of a season and, and over a year as well. And have you seen changes in that as well, just in terms of the kind of mileage people are running 
and or what they're doing when they're not running. Again, this is more philosophically speaking in terms of making sure that they're preparing themselves to stay healthy and maximize uh, their health? Well, one of my uh, gurus, if you might call him, and good friend was Bill Bowerman, the former, the late great coach of the University of Oregon. And uh, Bill probably was the individual that uh, promoted uh, the use of hard, easy training so that if you have a hard training day, the next day ought to be an easy day. So the day after that can be another hard training day. So I think we've become very adept and experienced at being able to manage runners uh, um, now compared to uh, 20, 30 years ago. My training programs that are available online uh, basically do the roller coaster effect where you'll have a hard workout on the weekend, a long run, and uh, the next day is, might be a rest day. It might be an easy running day, four or five miles. And the day after that could be five or 10 miles or maybe a speed training session on the track. Uh, but uh, there is this roller coaster effect where uh, a hard day is followed by an easy day, followed by a hard day, easy hard. And before you know it, you're lining up at the starting line of a 26.2 mile marathon. Now, you have been a part of this sport during the the entire evolution of women running the marathon, you know, from, you know, bandit racers in the Boston Marathon course in 1984, where it was introduced to the Olympics, to now, where some of the most well-known marathoners in America are women. And in fact, more women sign up for marathons than men do. What's that process been like? And did you see, when did you start to see it go from, you know, this slight buildup over time? to all of a sudden this almost avalanche uh, exposure of women into the marathon? Well, I go back to the 1960s, the first year that Bobby Gibb uh, ran the Boston Marathon, uh, literally coming out of the bushes and jumping on the course and having a lot of men believe that, well, she could not have run the whole 26-mile distance. She was probably in better shape than uh, 80% or 90% of the field out there because of the training that she had done. So. I was to a certain extent there at the beginning and was able to see the realization that, uh, you know, women belonged in this sport as much as men uh, and uh, no reason why I couldn't share the same workout areas but the same racing areas. And uh, I think it's been very exciting to see the development, Catherine Switzer and all the time and effort that she still puts into promoting uh, long distance running and, uh, you know, actually, the American women marathoners are among the best in the world. Uh, look back at the uh, last Olympics, and we had three gals in the top ten, which is there wasn't any team category. But if there was, the U.S. would have would have would have won that for the depth of our field. And uh, the marathon trials uh, for both men and women is coming up for me, at least, as we record this next weekend. And in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, we've got some really good, really good women that are going to be in that race, some some good men as well. So uh, I'm looking forward. I won't be in Atlanta to watching them on uh, um, on television and seeing them also uh, in the Olympics, hopefully this summer. Yeah, and and even this week that the cover of Women's Running Magazine, you have Shalane Flanagan. They're talking about the next stage of her career. Do you see this being a trend of high-level elite women now moving into the coaching ranks? Well, I hope they do. You know, 
because who knows better about the type of training it takes to compete at the top level. At the same time, there's a lot of great coaches that never got near a three or four hour marathon. So I think the uh, the, the sport is welcoming to uh, people at all level, uh, you know, gals that uh, ran in uh, high school and college and worked as a, uh, a elite or it's non-elite runner and then share the information with uh, uh, with others who are who are coming along. So I think the, the short is uh, really great these times. What's the learning process like for you as a coach? Obviously, you're you're well versed in a lot of things. You put a lot of um, a lot of content out in the world in a lot of different forms regarding running and coaching. How do you go about making sure that you're on top of your game and learning as much as you can? Well, I just try and get continue to get involved in the sport. Uh, and I never expected I would be helping runners when I started, as I said back in high school. But I was lucky in having a very good coach work with me. Uh, I went to uh, Fred Wild, who was an Olympian, uh, ran the 10,000 meters both in the 1948 and 1952 Olympic Games, and uh, I learned a tremendous amount from Fred and more or less just uh, picked things up as I went along. Uh, probably the key moment was, and it was at a point in my life when I was sort of semi-retired, still running fairly effectively as a, a master, and a good friend of mine, uh, who was the athletic director and coach at uh, Southwestern Michigan College, decided to teach a chorus in jogging at the school and asked me to sort of uh, come along and take in. And we had uh, 50, 100 uh, adult joggers who were involved in training in this little town of uh, Dwajak, Michigan, Southwestern Michigan College. And I learned tremendous amount from them about what goes on in the middle of the pack and the back of the pack. And so I'll I've been able to learn from them and to share what I learned uh, uh, with others. A couple of years after that, my son, Kevin, graduated from Indiana University and told me he wanted to qualify for the Olympic trials marathon. Uh, so I coached him Well, he was out of college and working a more than nine to five job as an accountant with Pete Marwick. So we uh, loaded all of his heart training into the weekends, Saturday, Sunday, and um, usually Friday would be an easy day or a total rest day. Monday would be a rest day as well. Uh, in the middle of the week, we'd do some running and maybe a little bit of hard running, but uh, a real overload on the weekend. And it worked for Kevin. He ran a 218, qualified for the uh, Olympic trials, didn't quite make it uh, to the Olympics, but still a tremendous success. And I've been more or less borrowing on that theory of uh, overload uh, at certain points uh, uh, in working with uh, marathoners at all levels of ability. Now, you mentioned before the whole you know high-low mentality that Bowerman provided and you see so pervasive in a lot of training plans. When you do the weekend overload, how do you manage the dichotomy between having like the hard day rest day uh, model and then the overload model, which is probably more beneficial for people who are living a busier life and have you know a lot of you know work demands and family demands and so on and so forth. Well, I think everybody's got to pick their own level of effort, and um, you know typically the people who are trying to qualify for the Olympic trials are out there running twice a day, uh, five or ten miles the uh, first workout of the day, five or ten miles the second workout of the day, because that was the level of training I was uh, 
doing when I had my uh, days of glory, so to speak. But obviously, not everybody can make that time commitment. So I try to teach people to manage their time as much as possible. And, uh, you know, you really only have to do one hard workout a week when you actually commit a long period of time. And if you're going out for a long run, you may find yourself doing three, four or five hours, depending on your ability, uh, how long you're going to be on the marathon course itself. So everybody has to find a way to balance themselves. I started out actually uh, uh, working with Terry Pinkowski, the race director at the Chicago Marathon, who hired me sort of as a consultant to work with runners training for the program in the uh, city of Chicago. And uh, we put together training programs for novice, intermediate, and advanced runners. So you could pretty much pick and train the level that you were at. And eventually, uh, we were able to throw these up online and uh, uh, do interactive versions of them. And uh, literally millions, I'm sure, of runners from everywhere from London to Mumbai are using my programs. And it's a very doable uh, training program. So uh, I'm, I'm not going to tell you that running a marathon is easy, but it doesn't have to be real hard either. How you segued perfectly. I don't know if you're going to get into the podcast game, but you certainly could because you knew where I was going and you <laughs> led me right to it. Um, so this podcast is for and about dedicated amateur runners. And the vast majority of people who have been on this show, who have discussed their first marathon experience, have almost universally used one of the Hal Higdon free plans off the Internet or, you know, one of the lower price plans they were able to find with your name on it in their first marathon buildup. When you hear stuff like that, or you're, you know, obviously you're aware of it because you just mentioned it. What's that like just knowing that you've had this experience in so many people's lives and yet at the same time, you know, if these plans are static for a lot of these folks and they can kind of make of them what they will, either kind of good, bad, or neutral. Yeah, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, I went out for running. I was just a kid who wanted to win a letter at my high school. And here I am, uh, Years and years and years, it's, uh, it's like um, <laughs> the Rolling Stones singing of satisfaction because it's very satisfying for me to be involved in the running movement and to have people literally come up to me in odd places of the world and uh, having recognized me because they saw my face on the Internet and used one of my programs. I had an individual from India uh, at, a, at a gaucho ramp in Argentina introduced himself and said, hey, I use use your programs. Uh, another time when I was at Athens for the Athens Marathon, uh, the what was it, the 450th anniversary of the founding, I was at a, a restaurant uh, uh, not too far from the Acropolis, and some woman at the other side of the restaurant yelled over to me and said that she had used my training programs for 51 marathons. And I thought, oh, my gosh, really? So, uh, yeah, it is very, very rewarding. I can imagine it's, it really is remarkable. And then you also have that situation too, where like, you know, like you have these, these plans that anybody can use and it's, it's the accessibility creates this, this obviously like wide array of experiences. Do you ever have pushback? Like, Hey, I used your plan and it didn't work. Like what, what do you do when you get that, th those sorts of comments? Well, I don't know. I guess they run off my back because most people who, uh, 
are smart enough to use a training program are also smart enough to realize that uh, it's more than the program. It's the individual using the program or sometimes misusing the program that uh, results in success. But, you know, people can uh, stagger in at a half hour, a mile pace and still have a tremendous success when they uh, cross that finish line. I'm happy to be part of that success. Absolutely. And I, and I said that kind of tongue in cheek, but when you have that many programs out there, obviously, you know, you, you kind of do run that risk, but it, it's, it certainly is a remarkable thing. And you've been able to embrace the technology side of all of this as well. And, you know, as you mentioned, you've been a part of the marathon, you know, for a very long time. You're part of running for a very long time. And part of that is introducing your programs and your expertise in a variety of different formats. So just from a technological perspective, what are some of the positives that you've seen in terms of running technology? And what are some of the things that maybe you've seen that have come across, um, you know, kind of come across in recent decades that you feel like we could have done without? Well, I, I think everybody is trying to sell motivation. Uh, that's the one thing that people can use to make themselves better runner. But uh, I'm no technological genius. But fortunately, I have a grandson, uh, Jake Higdon, who is a technological genius, and he spent a good part of the last year putting together a new app for me, uh, which comes pretty close to carrying you through your workouts every day. So, yeah, that's great. At the same time, I I, I sort of look with wonder at uh, some of the new equipment we have and wonder, do I really need that equipment? You know, do I really want to spend $250 for a shoe that's going to make me run three seconds faster? Well, maybe, maybe, maybe I, I do. Uh, and, you know, I need a new watch, quite honestly, myself. Uh, and it's great that I'll be able to download my app into my watch and even uh, carry myself along in the workouts. What's your feeling on the GPS watches? Obviously, they're quite prevalent. There's new features coming out all the time. And yet, at the same time, there's plenty of watch users who like to take breaks from using their watch or maybe not use them on certain workouts versus other workouts. What, what are your feelings on it as a training tool and as something to just kind of monitor how your training is going? Well, there was a Scandinavian gentleman that just died a few weeks ago. His name was Borg. And he was the one that came up with the chart of perceived exertion. And when I was being measured in various... Uh, uh, exercise uh, science uh, rooms on treadmills uh, by uh, scientists like Dave Costell, Ken Cooper, Mike Pollack. Uh, there always was a sign up on the wall. Uh, the Borg chart would began at uh, the level of exertion you're at, six being very, very easy and 20 being very, very hard. And uh, one of the nice things like that is it recognizes that the best uh, piece of equipment we have is the human brain who can learn to recognize uh, what the proper level of exertion is for any one particular workout. So I think what I'm trying to do, uh, utilizing the scientists to know training programs as best I can, but also teaching runners to teach themselves uh, so that they know uh, through their own feelings that what every workout is going to be a good workout, bad workout, or somewhere, somewhere in the middle. Yeah, and, and one thing I wanted to talk to you, too, about is just, you know, how much talent plays a role or doesn't play a role in terms of um, 
running performance, we'll just specifically talk about the marathon here because if people are listening to this, they know you as someone who's guided so many people through marathon experiences. In terms of say, like say for men or women trying to say Boston qualify, because that's a, that's a it's a common a common time that people look for. It's relative to age. Uh, it's 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 a high quality time for many people, and you wrote about it in this book. So let's just talk about BQs. How much of it do you think is talent related versus just being able to just put in the work and get it done? Well, I think put in the work and get it done probably rates ahead of talent if you're talking about uh, getting a BQ, a Boston qualifier, uh, because if you're willing and able to and patient enough to spend several years to learn training and to do training and and push your body up to a level without getting injured, yeah, then I think uh, Boston is a achievable uh, possibility. But if you're talking about uh, making an Olympic team or not merely making an Olympic team, but winning an Olympic medal, that has some specific uh, abilities that you know, might help if you were born in East Africa uh, because I think there's a certain basic talent uh, that you need to do to succeed at this highest of high levels. On the other hand, for a lot of people just joining the mar- ranks of the marathoners for the first time, uh, the time that it takes to qualify for the Boston Marathon is a very high level, so that motivates them. But, boy, we're just getting more and more runners uh, uh, joining the sport. I just was reading a story this morning that, what was it, 185,000 People had uh, tried to get uh, uh, into the lottery to get into the New York City Marathon. And is it the Tokyo Marathon that has like 300,000 people trying to get in the lottery? So it's getting tougher and tougher and tougher to get into the high uh, quality races. But uh, that's the carrot out there and it uh, keeps a lot of us going. And the nice thing is, is that uh, over and above, even if you don't qualify for Boston or the Olympics or whatever your specific goal is you are converting yourself into a bulletproof body, uh, then the, uh, you know, the science suggests that you're going to live longer and you're going to feel better and look better. A lot of very positive things. I was doing a book some years ago on master's running, and I went down to Dallas, Texas, to the aerobic center to interview Ken Cooper, who has data on literally tens of thousands of people, runners and non-runners, who have come to his aerobic center, and he told me that uh, by becoming a runner, um, you could live six to nine years longer. And I said, what? I thought what? And I said, ask him to repeat it, because I didn't quite believe him. But he had the data. Uh, basically, uh, runners live longer, but it's not merely because we're runners, but it's because when we become runners, we do all the other good things, uh, lose weight, get a decent diet, quit smoking, maybe stay out of the bars at 2 o'clock on a Friday morning, uh, all the good things that are going to promote uh, longevity. So I think that's sort of the the accompanying part that uh, goes along with being a long-distance runner. Yeah, and you just mentioned, you know, in terms of becoming a you know, Boston qualifying marathon runner, you mentioned the years and years of practice that you'd want to do in order to get that. Can you speak more about what Jared Ward, and I've had him on my other podcast several times, talks about basically lifetime fitness when it comes to the marathon and the importance of it in regards to this specific race where it maybe isn't as imperative for something like a 5K or 10K? 
Well, I think the most important word that I'm going to throw out at you is consistency. Uh, you need to be consistent about your training. You need to be consistent about your lifestyle. And uh, I think those things all go hand in glove. And if you uh, put the BQ, the Boston Qualifier, as your lifetime goal, uh, you know, people and women in their 65, 70s are qualifying that race because they dedicate themselves uh, over and above any talent they may have to uh, succeeding at a high level. So I think it's sort of you need to get educated and you need to be consistent and uh, make running part, an important part of your life and uh, good things will flow out of it. Now, who are some of the people, you know, maybe two or three that you think at the highest level of running were able to completely maximize their potential? Well, I look at Paula Radcliffe and I was in a, a, a van with uh, her husband when she came to Chicago Marathon and uh, uh, ran a two hour and 18 minute uh, marathon, which at that time was a world record. She later, Paula later took the time down to 215 and and Paula was a terrible looking runner. I mean, she had the world's worst form. You know, if you looked at her and you took a picture out of her, you would say, you know, that gal cannot run that fast. But somehow she overcame it. Emo Zadepec, who was among the all-time greats, had awful form. Alberto Salazar, too. And somehow uh, runners succeed. So there are various ways that you can achieve your own level level of ability. And uh, you sort of take what, uh, what you were handed to when you – when you be, were born and uh, uh, do with it what you will. And maybe at the end of, uh, of the trail, you will have achieved that uh, great success, uh, even if the great success is just a bucket checkoff. I love the description I read of Emil Zatopek, uh, his running style. I forget who wrote it or, or said it, but he said it uh, that he ran as if he was getting stabbed in the heart. <laughs> right. And he didn't take any fluids either. He was a, he was he was a marvelous man. I was very lucky to have seen him run. Uh, I was in the U.S. Army in Germany, uh, and our, the U.S. track team, of which I was a member, was training in Nuremberg. And Emil came to run a five kilometer, five thousand meter actually race on the track, and I was able to go right up to the the fence right outside the track and be within twenty or thirty. Uh, meters of him as he ran at 5,000 meters. And I went today is a very slow time, but it was unbelievable to be in the same area. And uh, and then some 10 or 15 years later, my good friend George Hurst, who is one of the uh, uh, supporters of the New York City Marathon, invited Emil to come to New York to receive an award, had the opportunity to uh, uh, go out to dinner with him and, and, a, and a bunch of people. So we all have our our heroes, you know, some people might be a, a, a football hero, Tom Brady. Uh, my hero certainly was Emil Sadafek. I love the story of him and Ron Clark, where he, you know, went to see who, you know, Ron Clark, I think, went to see him when he was at that point. Emil was, you know, basically, uh, you know, it was a show of himself in terms of his um, his notoriety within his home country. And, you know, these things had gone wrong politically for him. And how he had smuggled in, or basically smuggled his his medal to Ron Clark, who at that point had been based on basically everything a runner could do, except for winning an Olympic medal or win gold medal. And just he seeing the humble nature and reading about it, I should say, the humble nature of Emil and just the way he carried himself, and just obviously he was extremely competitive. 
but yet seemed to have this other portion of his, you know, an overwhelming portion of his character that was so caring for other people. And it feels like running that that is sort of part and parcel with so many people at the highest level in terms of their ability to, when they're not running, connect with other runners in a way that maybe you don't see that quite as much in other sports. That's true. And, you know, uh, the one thing that uh, a runner who goes to Boston or New York or London or the major races, they're on the starting line with the best people in their sports. You can't get on the football field with Tom Brady, but you could have gotten in the uh, on a, a marathon course uh, with, with the top people that uh, we see only on TV most of the time. So I think that's one of the unique things about our sport is the closeness of, of of what you might call the normal runner and the and the super elite runner, uh, I think a lot of the normal runners would be surprised at the level of respect that the uh, super elite runners have for even the slowest among us who come across the line in four or five six hours with a smile on our face. Uh, so uh, we're all in this, all in this together. What question do you get most often when you're out and about and people want to ask you about running? Oh, boy, that's a tough one. Haven't asked that question in a while. You know, how do I run a little bit faster? You know, people would come up to me at an expo and ask, they would want one final tip. And I had a nice two-word tip that I threw at them. It was start slow. Uh, because I think if you start slow, uh, the advantage you get is that you can finish fast and you'll probably pass a few people in the last uh, 385 yards. I love it. Hal, how can people learn more about you and all the things that you're providing to runners around the world? Well, I'm really very easily accessible. Uh, I sound like a presidential candidate by saying just go to my website, uh, which is very easy, halhigdon.com. And uh, you can go in and get on my website. And there's all sorts of links to all of my training programs, printer-friendly programs. Put them up on your refrigerator for uh, motivation. I'm tweeting daily, uh, you know, with uh, tips and everything, ask, answering questions. And not only am I out there, but a lot of other very intelligent runners and coaches are there too, sharing with uh, with runners what, how to make the sport more fun for them. And fun, I think, is a very important uh, uh, word if you're going to be a marathon runner, because it is fun. Yeah, when we spoke yesterday, just in preparation for this conversation, you told me that you weren't very technologically savvy. Well, you have 41,000 Twitter followers, so you're doing something right on that end, Hal. I don't know. I haven't counted them lately, but yeah, my grandson, Jake, every now and then throws some fantastic numbers at me. <laughs> but, you know, I'm basically one runner at a time uh, when it comes to throwing uh, information out. Yeah, everybody is welcome. Everybody can join. Well, I certainly appreciate you coming on. I've been someone who has, like so many of my guests, I've used a Hal Higdon program in my life. I'm sure I did not do it justice. But thank you so much for coming, not only on the show, but everything you're doing for the sport of running. My pleasure. Hal, thank you so much for coming on the show. What a great conversation with a great man. This was so much fun. Go pick up his book. It's everywhere. Running books or any books are sold. This guy, man, what an absolute legend. Can you imagine touching as many lives as this guy has? It's so incredible to me because basically on this podcast, and I mentioned it to him during the interview, it was like 80% of people who come on this show, which is what, 
Hal's the 218th episode, so 217 people before him, I feel like 80% of them have mentioned using the Hal Higdon program when they first started running. That is an absolutely astounding thing. His techniques, his teaching methods, and just himself has stood the test of time, and it was just an honor to have him on the show. Also, big ups to our sponsors, Prevenex and VDOT. I use these guys all the time in very different ways. Prevenex is the supplement brand I trust. VDOT is the app and system I use as a coach and also as an athlete. That's how I communicate with my coach is through the VDOT system. So go check them out. Thank you so much for listening rating, reviewing, and sharing the show. As I mentioned before, this is full-time for me. So if you can also support the show financially, I'd really appreciate it. Go to Patreon, type in Rambling Runner. I'll be right there. There's also a link to the show notes you can support for as little as $1 a month. $1 a month to support the show. It would really go a long way. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of In Post Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.